0: We'll read this morning from Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35, hear the word of the Lord. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the ear rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel, under the terebinth tree, so the name of it was called Alan Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, "'Your name is Jacob.' Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured an oil on it, and Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre in Kirjath Arba, that is, Hebron where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were one hundred and eighty years. So Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. The great doctor of the English Reformation, John Owen, in his book, The Glory of Christ, tells us that it is vain to expect to obtain grace from any source other than Christ himself. He reminds us that he, that is Christ, has assured us that without him, we can do nothing. We can no more bring forth fruit than a branch can that is separated from the vine. He is our head, and all our spiritual influences, that is, divine communication of grace, are from Him alone. Well, this morning, as we look at Genesis 35, I want us to see that both fruitfulness and dominion are accomplished by the power of God in Christ and not by man's efforts. That is, we cannot make ourselves fruitful physically or or spiritually, apart from the grace of God in Christ. And we cannot rule over creation or even over our own sin apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Both fruitfulness and dominion are accomplished by the power of God in Christ and not by our own efforts. So that's my thesis this morning coming out of Genesis 35, particularly verse 11. But I want to review the chapter in its entirety because this whole narrative is really working together to make this point. And then we'll focus on verse 11 and uh, my thesis and the application of it to our lives. As we ended chapter 34, we saw that once again Jacob found himself in a desperate situation and in need of refuge and deliverance. Uh, This has been the story of Jacob's life, has it not? First he had to flee from his brother Esau, then he fled from his uncle Laban, and now he finds himself in need of fleeing from the Canaanites. His sons, Simeon and Levi, had taken judgment into their own hands and had slaughtered the men of the city of Shechem, and they made Jacob and his household odious to the inhabitants of Canaan. Jacob feared that the men of the country would gather themselves together and seek to destroy him and his household. He said this in verse 30 of chapter 34. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But as chapter 35 begins, we we see on the threat on, you know on the heels of this new threat that Jacob faces we see that God once again steps in and delivers Jacob and so in verse 35 God speaks to Jacob In chapter 35, verse 1, then God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. So God speaks to Jacob and directs him to go to Bethel, the house of Elohim, the house of God. He reminds Jacob that He had appeared to Jacob in this place once before when he first fled from his brother Esau. And so God directs him to return to this location to dwell there and to worship there. Jacob gathers his household together and he instructs them to purify themselves in anticipation of attending to the worship of God in this holy place. And so we read in verse two, and Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Now the foreign gods, could refer to the household gods that Rachel had stolen from her father, Laban, when they fled Padan Aram. But it appears likely that it's more than just Rachel, since he is speaking to his entire household and telling them to put away these gods that are among them and in their hand. Uh, It's likely that some of Jacob's household, having lived in close proximity to this Canaanite city of Shechem, had begun to worship the Canaanite gods of the culture. Perhaps there are even those women who were taken captive by Jacob's sons in chapter 34 and are now part of his household and have brought with them the Canaanite gods that they worshipped. And so Jacob instructs his family and his household to put away these idols, these foreign gods, to cease worshipping them and to worship God alone. Now, God had not specifically instructed Jacob uh, to do this, but Jacob seems to discern that this is the proper and correct thing to do, to worship God exclusively. And so he he tells his household to put away these foreign gods that they have been worshiping to purify themselves and to change their clothes. Now, we don't know how much Jacob might have understood either by direct revelation that is not recorded for us or by instruction from his father and his grandfather. The laws regarding purification won't actually be given until about 400 years after this, during the time of Moses. It's possible, though, that Jacob has gathered his household together and is looking at them and that his sons are standing before him with their clothes and their hands still stained with the blood of the men of Shechem. And so Jacob tells them to wash themselves, to purify themselves, to change their filthy garments in preparation for worshiping God. This should be an example to us of the father's duty to prepare his family at home for the worship of God. Preparation and instructions are given ahead of time so that when the household reaches Beth El, the house of Elohim, the house of God, that they will be prepared both in spirit and in body to worship God with reverence and purity. And we see that the members of his household don't argue with him. They don't try to cling to these foreign gods. They readily give them up to him, along with the earrings they're wearing. Now, this is not to say that jewelry is idolatrous uh, de facto. Right? If we remember back, Abraham's servant, when he went to find a wife for Isaac, met Rebekah, and he gave her rings and bracelets of gold to wear in chapter 24. But these earrings were perhaps associated with the foreign gods that they were worshiping. So they not only had to abandon the obvious trappings of their foreign uh, false worship, the idols themselves, but the, the seemingly insignificant Uh, things that might be overlooked that were part and parcel of this false worship. Jacob takes these things and he buries them beneath a tree, and they depart Shechem and travel towards Bethel. And once again, we see that God is with him to protect and serve him. Jacob's fear had been that the men of the various cities of the culture would gather themselves together to attack him. But we read in verse 5, and they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So God steps in and delivers Jacob from this threat. And Moses, again, is the human author here, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But those who first read this account, the Israelites who have come out of Egypt... Some of them likely, uh, we don't know exactly at what point during the wilderness journeys Moses penned this. Some of them may have been adults who came out of Egypt. Many of them might have been children at the time that they left the land of Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness, anticipating entering the promised land. And one of the key uh, events in their exodus from Egypt was the crossing of the Red Sea, where they saw the entire Egyptian army drowned. The Egyptians had begun to follow them through the Red Sea and then had stopped and turned and fled, recognizing that God was fighting on behalf of Israel. And after this event occurred, Moses led the people in singing a song in Exodus chapter 15, part of which reads like this. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still a stone, "'Till your people pass over, O Lord, "'till the people pass over whom you have purchased. "'You will bring them in and plant them "'in the mountain of your inheritance, "'in the place, O Lord, "'which you have made for your own dwelling, "'the sanctuary, O Lord, "'which your hands have established. "'The Lord shall reign forever and ever.'" This is the song of Moses sung by the people of Israel, Jacob's descendants 400 years after the events of chapter 35. And I think as Moses writes this account of their ancestor, their father, Jacob, and they read this, they might possibly remember the words of that song they had sung at that event and remember that song with confidence that God had once done this for Jacob and he would do it again for them as they entered the promised land. God made the inhabitants of the land Still as stone because of the terror of the Lord, so that Jacob could safely travel to Bethel. In verse 6, we then read So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. Now, the original place of this, uh, the original name of this place is Luz, which means to depart. And so it's recorded here for us to remind us that this was the location at which Jacob encountered God as he departed from the promised land. But the name has been changed now to beth house of Elohim, or house of God. And so Jacob comes there, he builds an altar as God had instructed him, and he worships. In verse 7, it says that he called the place El-Beth-El, or God of the house of God. When he had fled from Laban in chapter 31, God spoke to him, and God identified himself as the God of Beth-El, or the El Beth-El. So Jacob is simply using the name that God has used to identify himself. Now, it appears that in the seven to ten years that Jacob and his household dwelt near Shechem, that he may have visited his father's household, likely did. His mother, Rebecca appears to have passed by this point. And her nurse, Deborah, who had come with her from the land of Padan Aram, appears to have come back to Jacob's household to serve his wives, who were also from that same country. And so uh, Deborah has now died, and she is buried below Bethel. After this, God appears to Jacob to bless him once again. And, and this is the key passage in this chapter, verses 10 through 12. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. First, God reaffirms Jacob's new name Israel the man who is a prince with God then he reaffirms the covenant promises he promises a multitude of descendants a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you he promises the land as an inheritance in verse 12 but he also promises at the end of verse 11 and kings shall come from your body Now, obviously, there is an immediate reference in these promises to the nation of Israel comprised of the 12 tribes of Israel, a company of nations. They're the ones who are the first audience reading this account as they moved through the wilderness towards their inheritance in the land. But it points past them at the same time. Commenting on this passage, Matthew Henry says, These promises had a spiritual signification, of which we may suppose Jacob himself had some notion, though not so clear and distinct as we now have. For without doubt, Christ is the promised king, and heaven is the promised land. So once again, we see that the promises made to the patriarchs are shadows pointing forward to the substance, which is Christ. And we'll come back to this in a moment and explore these promises further. But I want to review the rest of the chapter because there are some important things here. After God departs, Jacob once again worships. He sets up a pillar, anoints it with oil, makes an offering, and once again calls the place the house of God. But then the narrative changes, and we have recorded for us the death of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. As they left Beth-El, Rachel is pregnant and she goes into labor. She delivers another son, names him Ben-Oni, the son of my sorrow, and then she dies. Jacob, however, renames him Benjamin, son of my right hand. He erects a pillar to mark Rachel's grave, and the scriptures are insistent on pointing out the location of her grave as being near Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Now Moses and the generation of Israelites with him would have no way of knowing the significance of that location. It will become the city of David. It will become the birthplace of the promised king, the Messiah. The spirit here through Moses is connecting the dots from Genesis 35 to Matthew chapters 1 and 2. Well, then the narrative takes another dark turn. Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben, has a sexual relationship with Rachel's maid, Jacob's concubine, Bilhah. She is the mother of Reuben's half-brothers, Dan and Naphtali. Jacob doesn't appear to do much about it in the moment, but just as in chapter 34, at the end of his life, when he blesses his sons, he speaks prophetically concerning Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. There you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now what this amounts to is that Reuben, the firstborn, has just proven that he is not the king who will come. He is not the Messiah, the promised seed. Simeon and Levi had proved that in chapter 34 uh, by their events and, and their actions there. The next section of the chapter then lists Jacob's sons for us again. Now that Benjamin is born, all 12 sons are now alive. And we see them listed this time uh, by who their mother is. Instead of being listed in strict birth order, they are listed according to who their mother is. Leah's sons are listed first, and we quickly see that the first three sons of Jacob are disqualified by their actions in this chapter and the last. They're disqualified to be the line through whom the promised Savior would come. Judah is the fourth in line. But then Rachel's sons are listed next, Joseph and Benjamin, and then the two maids' sons. So the question is, will Judah, the fourth son, be the one, or will it be the firstborn of Rachel, Joseph, or the youngest son, Benjamin, the son of my right hand, following in his father's footsteps as the youngest son? Now, we have the benefit of knowing the rest of Scripture, and so we know it was Judah. We know that Jacob will prophesy over Judah at the end of his life as being the one through whom the promised king would come. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So the promise of kings here in chapter 35 will be fulfilled through Judah's line, not through Reuben, not through Simeon, not through Levi, not through Joseph or Benjamin, but through Judah. The chapter then closes with an account of the death of Isaac. He is buried by his two sons, Esau and Jacob, and interestingly, it lists them in that order as Esau and Jacob. Everywhere else we've read, it listed Jacob and then Esau. Jacob taking the preeminence because he was the one who inherited the covenant blessings. Here it lists them by birth order, Esau as the firstborn. But it shows us, it's making the point, it's reminding us Esau is the firstborn, but he is not the one who inherits the promises. The whole chapter is working together to make this point. The promised seed will come through one of Jacob's sons, and it won't be the three oldest. And we know that Jesus, the king, will be born to the line of Judah in the town of Bethlehem. And these things are here in chapter 35 of Genesis and hints and shadows. But now let's go back to verse 11 and deal with the details of this promise of a king. Chapter 35, verse 11 reads like this. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply, a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. So let's begin by establishing the elements of the covenant promises that are being made here. First, God identifies himself as the one who is in authority. He is the covenant Lord, dictating the terms of the covenant, making these promises. The second element is the command or the promise of fruitfulness and multiplication. The third element is the promise of a nation, a company of nations. The fourth element is the promise of kings. The fifth and final element is the promise of the land in verse 12. These are all elements that we've seen before in the promises that have been made, particularly in chapter 17 where God establishes the covenant with Abraham. But the way they are stated here is significant. For one thing, when the promises were made to Abraham, God promised that he would make Abraham fruitful or that he would multiply his descendants. But here, for the third time in Scripture, the exact phrase is used, be fruitful and multiply. This has only been used twice before. You can probably recall those two instances. The first was with Adam in the garden in Genesis one twenty-eight, and the second was with Noah immediately after the flood in Genesis 9 verse 1. And now that same exact language is used in Genesis 35.11 with Jacob. Now that's significant. I believe that the use of that language is meant to draw our minds back to Adam and Noah because there is a marked difference between these three passages, Genesis 1, Genesis 9, and Genesis 35. So let's review them, because these differences are important. Here is what God said to Adam in chapter 1, verse 28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, notice that the command to be fruitful and multiply is followed by the command to subdue the earth, to take dominion over all creation. Now what does it mean to take dominion? It means to rule. That's the job of a king. And so we can look at Adam in the beginning of Genesis and see that he was given three roles to fulfill by God. Adam was to be a prophet passing on to the rest of humanity what God had instructed him, the words that God had spoken to him. He quite obviously failed in this. Adam's wife, Eve, did not accurately recite the words of God when conversing with the serpent. Adam was to be a priest. He was to tend and keep the garden, which was a temple of sorts. It was the place where God dwelt with man. Adam failed in this when he allowed the serpent to invade that holy space with lies and temptation. And Adam was to be a king ruling over God's creation. And he failed in this when he allowed the serpent and, and sin itself to rule over him and his wife. He was then exiled from the garden. And we see in the remainder of the Old Testament as we read through it that these three roles of prophet, priest, and king are divided up at this point with three different groups of men, when they're never found all three roles in one man again until the coming of Christ in the New Testament. Our confession points out in chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator that Christ fills all three of these roles, becoming for us prophet priest, and king. But these three roles throughout the Old Testament are divided up amongst three different classes or three different groups of men. And any one particular person who is ordained into one of these offices is usually anointed with oil. Prophets are anointed with oil, priests are consecrated and anointed with oil, and the kings are anointed with oil. So when God comes in the flesh to take on these three roles in one person, he is called the Christ, which is a Greek word that means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, different men were anointed by God for different roles. But with the coming of Christ, there is now only one who is God's anointed, and that is Christ Jesus. He is our prophet, priest, and king. More than that, really. He's not just a prophet speaking the words of God. He is the word of God made flesh. He isn't just another priest. He is our great high priest who sacrificed himself for our atonement and lives forever, always making intercession for us. And he isn't just another king. He is, as we have already read this morning, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is, as he is called in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the last Adam. Adam, at the beginning of human history, was given these three roles and failed in all three of them. Christ, at the end of the ages, succeeds in fulfilling all three of these roles in which Adam failed. Now let's look at Noah in Genesis chapter 9. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your life blood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it and from the hand of man. For the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Now notice what's different here. Uh, when God speaks to Noah than when he spoke to Adam. God blesses them just as he blessed Adam and Eve in the garden. He commands them to be fruitful and multiply just as he commanded Adam and Eve. But instead of telling Noah to rule, to take dominion, to subdue the earth, he simply makes a promise that God has now placed the fear of man in all the other creatures in order to safeguard human life. And we're told elsewhere that Noah is a prophet, but he is not assigned the role of a king. He is not assigned the role of a priest. He will go on to worship, but he does not serve as a priest in a temple setting the way Adam did in the garden or the way Christ does in the church. So there's an important difference between the mandate given to Adam and that given to Noah. Now look again at Jacob in Chapter 35, verses 9 through 12. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you, I give this land. So just like Adam and Noah, God blesses Jacob. He renames him Israel. He gives him the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And then he promises that kings will come from Jacob's body. Now what do kings do? They take dominion. They rule So this is more akin to the mandate given to Adam than it is to that which was given to Noah. But notice it's not Jacob who will rule. He isn't to be a king. Rather, his descendants will establish a nation, a company of nations. The twelve tribes gathered into one nation, Israel, ruled by kings. David, of course, from the line of Judah, is the exemplar of that rule. But as I said earlier, this promise is looking forward to the promised seed, Christ, the anointed one, who would rule over the serpent, crushing the head as prophesied in Genesis 3.15. And Christ said that he would gather people to himself into one people from every nation and kindred and tribe and tongue. And then he makes them into a new nation. 1 Peter 2, 9-10, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God. So Christ gathers a company, a company out of the nations, to form a new nation, the church, and he rules as king of kings and lord of lords. And this is what makes this passage so different from Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, it was Adam who was supposed to rule. In Genesis 35, it isn't Jacob who is supposed to rule, but one who would come from his body. The kings of Israel, David, Solomon, etc., were but precursors to the final king, who is Christ the one who would sit on the throne of David forever, descended from Israel according to the flesh. The passage actually begins with a statement of God's identity. He says, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Therefore, you will be fruitful and multiply, and a king will come, not by the will and work of Jacob, but by the will and power of God Almighty. We've already seen that Rachel was childless. And when she complained to Jacob, remember how he responded? He responded in, verse, in chapter 30, verse 2, by saying, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Any fruitfulness in the line of Jacob is a result of the power of God, not the will of man. And Jacob was constantly on the run He ran from Esau, he ran from Laban, he ran from the Canaanites. Any ruling, any taking dominion that would be done wouldn't be done in the strength that Jacob possessed. It would be done by the strength of God. Both fruitfulness and dominion are accomplished by the power of God in Christ and not by man's efforts. So we can see that all of this is pointing forward to Christ we can see the glory of God and the revelation of Christ here in Genesis 35, but more than that, there's a lesson here for us that I believe can be directly applied to our life in the church today. Last Lord's Day, we saw that Simeon and Levi took upon themselves the task of judgment, of executing justice, but they shouldn't have, because that was God's work, and it was not assigned to them. And when they took it upon themselves, they did it imperfectly, with cruelty and mercilessness. Thereby, they created a situation in which Jacob found his household in danger once again. And from their example, we addressed the issue of church growth, that it's the work of God to grow his church, not the work of men, that we are called to do works, to proclaim the gospel, But we have to leave the actual work of regenerating the hearts of men, the actual work of growing the church, in the hands of God. Well, now we see this morning that that fruitfulness and dominion are accomplished by the power of God and not by our own efforts. We've compared verse 11 to Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. Now I would like to compare it to Matthew chapter 28, the passage we commonly refer to as the Great Commission, Now remember the elements that we've seen here in chapter 35, the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, the promise of a nation, of dominion, of an inheritance, and all rooted in the authority and power of God as the one who would accomplish these things where Adam had previously failed. Now listen to the great commission given by Christ to his church just before his ascension. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me, In heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Those are the same elements from Genesis 35, and they're present in Matthew 28. Christ is God Almighty with all authority in heaven and on earth. He will build his church. Our calling is to go into the nations and disciple those he regenerates and adds to our number from among all the nations as he creates a new nation for himself. We are to baptize them into the covenant community as members of this new nation, one nation comprised of a company of people from all nations. We are to teach them to obey all that he has commanded as our king. It's king's who have the authority to issue commands that must be obeyed. And we can do all of this with a confidence that the king is with us as we go, just as Jacob had been confident that God was with him. In verse 3, he had said that God has been with me in the way which I have gone. So as we contemplate the task of disciple-making, the task that we have been assigned we must remember that both fruitfulness and dominion are accomplished by the power of God in Christ, not by our own efforts. As John Owen reminded us in that quote I shared at the very beginning, we can bear no fruit, no fruit in disciple-making, no fruit in our own sanctification, no fruit of any kind apart from the power of Christ at work in and through us. We certainly can't take dominion and rule over creation, the church, or even our own sin, apart from him. All authority is his. It is his voice that the wind and the waves obey, not ours. It is his name that the demons fear, not ours. It is his power and work that destroys the devil, not ours. It is his power at work in us that sanctifies us not our own. And it is his power that grows the church. And when we preach Christ and we make disciples and we teach them to obey all of his commandments, we must do so as Paul said that he did in his own ministry, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. If we would heed that admonition that we saw last week in chapter 34 not to take upon ourselves the work which is reserved for God alone, we must learn that even in attending to the work that He has given us, that we are not to work in our own strength but in His. The mandate given to Israel in verse 11 is not so much a mandate as it was to Adam as it is a promise God would do this. He would cause Israel to multiply and become a nation of nations. He would cause kings to arise and rule over that nation. He would give them the land as their inheritance. But they would have to trust the promises and wait on God's timing. He would send them to Egypt as slaves for 400 years first. Then he would bring them out with great power and glory and establish the nation and give them the land and raise up kings. But even so, they would still wait for that one king to come, the one who would rule over the serpent, who would rule over all creation. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to redeem his people from among the nations, to defeat Satan, to seize the keys of death and Hades, to accomplish what Adam and Israel could not And now as we live in the world as citizens of the heavenly kingdom awaiting the return of the king, we also must trust in the promise of God, knowing that fruitfulness and dominion are His work and accomplished by His power. So as we labor in our own sanctification, putting sin to death, we do so by the power of God at work in us by His Spirit. As we labor in disciple-making, teaching, and obedience, we do so by the power of God at work among us by His Spirit. And I would submit to you that our dependence on the Spirit is best seen in our dependence on the Word of God, given by the Spirit for our instruction and for our sanctification, and also in our obedience in worship we see this in Jacob's life, even here in chapter 35. He hears the word of God in verse 1, and then he obeys. He worships as he was instructed to do. He builds an altar. He makes offerings. Christ prayed for us in John 17. Praying to the Father, he said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Our sanctification is dependent upon the Word of God at work in our hearts. Our task of proclaiming the gospel to the nations and making disciples is dependent upon the Word of God bringing forth faith in the hearts of men. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We're not justified by our works, but by Christ's. We are not sanctified by our works, but by his word at work in us. It's all too easy to drift into a sort of legalism that says, I must do these things or I'm not actually being a Christian. Or if you're not doing these things, you're you're not a real Christian. But that in essence is doing what Simeon and Levi did in chapter 34, taking judgment into our own hands. As the Reformers used to say, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. That is, our faith is followed closely by works, but those works are to be done by the power of the Spirit, not our own sinful effort. If you're striving in your own effort to to, to seek to make yourself right in God's eyes, to, to, to be justified before God by your own good works, or if you're striving to, to do things so that you can appear good in the eyes of men, to, to put your sin to death by your own strength of will, then you're attempting to do Christ's work for Him and you will accomplish nothing. John Owen, in that quote that I shared at the beginning, was referencing Jesus' words in John 15 where he said, Abide in me, and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If we seek our justification, our sanctification, or the work of discipleship in the world, apart from Christ, we accomplish Nothing. It must be done according to the power of God in Christ working through us. As Paul questioned the believers in the churches of Galatia saying, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? We are to turn to Him in dependence, not the pride of self-effort, but in dependence upon His Spirit working through us. We must go to Him in prayer and plead the promises of His Word, for He has promised that He would work through us by His Spirit. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. And in Philippians 1.6, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it, not by our effort, but by the power of the Spirit. So let us, with Jacob, trust the Word of God to do its work by the power of the Spirit in us and through us, knowing that fruitfulness and dominion are accomplished not by our efforts, but by the power of God working through His people. Let's pray.